Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Architecture Unfiltered podcast. This is episode two, A Day in the Life of an Architect, and I am your host and resident architect, Brian Johns. So it's been a little while since my last podcast. Um, I've learned a lot in that time period. One thing I've learned is that it is very difficult to fit this into the schedule of an architect slash project manager with five, almost six kids now um, and lots of responsibilities outside of the office as well. Um, So life as an architect can be crazy at times, and it's been a few hectic months, but hey, that's okay. Being busy is a good problem to have. Um, I'm back, and I'm looking forward to recording some new episodes, getting some new content out there for everybody. Um, And, you know, the the main thing that's kind of kept me from doing this is that I've been waiting for the perfect opportunity to have a block of time um, isolated for me to upgrade my podcast studio so that I can deliver better audio um, a nice, uh, well-produced video podcast, perhaps, full of great content and terrific sounding audio, um, set up some interviews, et cetera, et cetera. I've come to realize if I want to get this done and I want to get content out there, which I do, what I need to do is do my best and not worry about the perfect scenario, not worry about perfection. And um, I feel like that's a good lesson for everybody to learn at some point in their life, especially in architecture. We drive for perfection and that's fantastic. But sometimes if we want to get the job done, um, close to perfect is good enough. It'll get us there. That doesn't mean that we put out anything low quality or bad quality. Um, Sometimes we just got to kind of let go a little bit and uh, get the job done. Um, We don't necessarily have time for perfection. We, We have a lot of projects going on and a lot of things that we have to accomplish. What we do have the time in the day for, though, is just to do our very best, make sure that we meet a level or a standard of care, and that we're producing, at the end of the day, our best product. Um, but not always a perfect product. That can be hard for some people to hear. I understand that. Um, It's hard for me to hear at times. You know, you want to strive for perfection in everything that you do, but not unlike this podcast, if I want to get this out there, I'm going to have to just do my best and not expect perfection. Okay, so now that we've got that out of the way, let's jump into it. Today's topic is a day in the life of an architect. Um, and what that looks like. So I'm going to share a little bit about what my typical day looks like, or in particular, one particular day in this case, uh, just to give you a closer look at it. Um, And I'm also going to talk about what it might have looked like for me uh, early on in my career. So now, mind you, I've worked in an architectural environment for some time. I started out as a draftsman back uh, back in 1997, a long time ago. And the office that I started out in uh, it was a historic preservation office, um, small firm with about four four architects. We were manually drafting. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take you way back a little bit, build a little bit of my background, where I came from and where I'm at now. A day in the life of an architect in 1997, or an intern architect, I should say, because that's uh, where I'm coming from, was a lot different than um, what an entry-level architect's day might look like today uh, in some regards, and in some regards, uh, perhaps similar. So um, 20 years ago, I would have been doing things like uh, running errands, um, you know, taking submittals back and forth, um, using a blueprint machine to run blueprints for the day, whether that be uh, just prints of drawings that the team was using or actual deliverables for an owner, um, sets of documents that the contractor needed. I might have been taking uh, sets of drawings to UPS or to the post office to have them delivered to 
plan rooms for bidding or uh, extra set of extra sets of documents for the contractors on site that they needed. Um, I might have even been doing a little bit of drafting on the boards. So uh, a lot of different things. Um, that's that's kind of typically what my day looked like back then. Uh, today, some 20 years later, as a project manager, the day looks a little bit different for me. So uh, next, let's get into that. My day will usually start off around 6 a.m. Uh, that's not when my alarm's set. My alarm's usually set for 6.30, and that would be ideal. I mentioned earlier I have five kids and a sixth one on the way. So 6 a.m. is usually when mom and dad get woke up, uh, if not sooner. Um, we both work in the same architectural office, uh, so we have the same schedule pretty much. We both get up, get the kiddos all ready, and off to daycare and school, uh, do our best to get out the door in a timely manner. By the time everybody's where they're going for the day, um, whether it be daycare, school, or work, we uh, we usually end up at work around 8.30, and that's on a perfect day. 8.30 is great. Um, <laughs> much of my podcast gets originally dictated in my truck on the way to work and then later recorded in the studio and today's no different um, so i have now arrived in the parking deck at work and i'll go over a little bit of my um, routine so what i like to do right when i arrive at work is i like to turn the radio off uh, in my truck take a deep breath i like to grab my phone and look at my email really quick as well as um, we use Microsoft Teams at work, so I like to look at my Teams uh, app. I can, you know, take a look at my calendar, look at the um, any chats that I've got uh, received, maybe even missed phone calls, um, get my bags together. And that just kind of lets me know what I have uh, in store for me for the day. I like to walk into the office knowing what's coming at me, knowing what I have uh, on the plate for today. Um, one thing about being an architect is that we are flooded with constant information. Uh, so, I mean, we're constantly communicating with consultants, owners, um, future project owners, contractors, our own colleagues and team. Um, we're trying to form relationships with, you know, everything from community members at large that have comments, um, review boards. I mean, you're just constantly dealing with communication and coordination and sometimes at least for me, I feel that it's important to slow down and, and just take a look at everything that you have to do. Uh, get your mind wrapped around it before you walk into the office. Try to get a positive attitude about the day. And then just remember that you're going to tackle what you can tackle for the day, you know, just day, day one day at a time. So that sounds stressful. I'm not trying to paint a negative picture here by any means. This is an amazing career, but we do have a lot of communication that we're dealing with. And I just find personally that it helps to focus a few seconds, if not a minute, before I walk through the door and get my mind wrapped around what I want to accomplish. I'm not going to get everything cleared off my plate for the day. Um, we just, we don't. Um, that's not this perfection. We're working on projects that span multiple, you know, years at times. So I've I've actually worked on a project that spanned ten years of my career. Um, now, mind you, I had a lot of other projects going on at the same time, so it wasn't like I was only working on one thing. I'm just stating that, you know, a ten-year project, all that coordination over a ten-year period, um, it's a lot. So if you try to accomplish everything in one day, you're going to be just greatly disappointed. It's not realistic. Um, so I'm going to walk through the door today, for instance, 
I know that I've got six active projects, four of which have things pressing within the next few weeks. Um, so if I walk through that door and I plan on accomplishing everything I need to do within the next few weeks on all of those projects, I am going to be very disappointed, right? I want to set myself up for success, a feeling of accomplishment, and get things cleaned off my plate for today that need to be taken care of today. Uh, just not worry about my entire workload right now. You need to keep it in context, but don't stress. In this case, I am recording this podcast on a Friday, <clears throat> so I'm going to be heading into the weekend, and that needs to consist of some family life too, right? Like work-life balance is very tough um, as an architect. To make family time happen, you have to do your best to leave your work at work and just go spend time with your family. All right, so I talked a little bit about you know my, what I do in the parking deck before I walk into the building. Now this morning, I'm going to load up my podcasting equipment. <clears throat> I've got a gym bag ready. Um, I like to try to get to the gym. Uh, in my case, I go to CrossFit over my lunch break and have a little workout. There's a CrossFit box across the road from my office, so it's it's easy for me to do. <clears throat> I'm also going to be carrying in my lunch bag, my work uh, laptop bag, and uh, I'm going to load up with those things and head in shortly here. I'm going to, first thing, sit down at my desk. I'm going to throw my headphones in and try to listen to some some music that gets me going for the day, um, get through my morning email, and I will talk to you again soon after I'm through that process. So let's just continue to walk through a day in my life. We're, we're in the office now. Um, in my case, um, as a project architect and project manager, that may look a little different um, than every architect. There's, there's those two roles can somewhat coincide. There's also some pretty stark differences between the two at times. But for the most part, to be a good project manager, you really need to be a good project architect uh, first. So I have put that time in being a project architect and I'm sort of just uh, jumping into the realm of project management. That timeline can happen differently for you depending on uh, what your goals are. Um, today in particular, I spent about an hour going through my email um, looking at any construction administration duties that I have to take care of the day for the day, uh, checking over my calendar, making sure uh, how my meetings are stacking up, maybe grabbing a second cup of coffee uh, just to help me get through the morning. So um, I have several projects that are in the midst of uh, my construction administration responsibilities. So I will be responding to submittals from contractors, uh, things like um, shop drawings, product shop drawings, product data, um, and any questions the contractors might be have a, be having about um, ongoing projects. Those questions are called requests for information, hopefully, if they've submitted them properly. <laughs> I will also be uh, preparing for uh, a couple of meetings. One is a pay request progress meeting, and I'll explain that in a little bit. I will also be preparing for a presentation to a board of education um, and I have a report that I'm finalizing a uh, assessment study. Uh, as a project manager, I will check in with the team for the day, make sure everybody's you know staying on schedule, they staying on track. Uh, they have all the information they need from me uh, to to get their job done for the day, and just keep everything moving along. We're always pressing towards some deadline, so it's important to keep up. Um, keep up with the team, make sure they have what they need to produce the best set of documents, and we. Don't leave anything on the table when those documents go out of the out of the office. Um, so this is the best time uh, for my team to 
make sure the project's fully coordinated, uh, not after bidding. Once the documents leave our office and are in the hands of a contractor, uh, anything um, that was, we'll say, perhaps omitted or uh, needs to be added to those documents will inevitably cost the project more than it would have had it been included at the time of bidding. So we try to make sure everything's in there. Kind of rambled there a little bit, but um, I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail about a few of those tasks. I mentioned a report that I'm doing. So one thing that we do um, as, as architects is that we often um, do what's called an assessment study or a feasibility study. In this case, I'm doing an assessment study of an existing pool facility. And that process entails working with uh, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and structural engineers, um, as well as some other subconsultants for testing and things like that. We'll visit the project site, which we've already done, and do a quick visual inspection of the facility, including all of the equipment, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, pumps, filters, etc. Once we're done with that, we will put together a report that basically defines what the existing conditions are and any improvement needs that we can identify. Um, and then we'll give a couple of options as well as an estimate, what we call an opinion of probable cost to the owner. Um, basically just outlining what are your options moving forward with improvements to the facility? What type of life safety needs are required? And are there any general items that we recommend um, for improvements as well? And we'll package that up into a nice report, deliver that to the Board of Education and, and basically tell them this is where you're at in the life cycle of that facility. Um, you should probably plan on X, Y and Z moving forward to keep that facility in working order. Or we could also just say um, what the next steps would be if you decide to change the use of the facility, which can often happen uh, depending on um, the needs that are established and the cost thereof. <clears throat> I also mentioned some of the construction administration duties I'm in the middle of. Currently, I'm working on uh, several projects like I mentioned previously. Three of those are mid-sized, what I would call mid-sized projects. Um, and they're, they're kind of working in parallel with each other timeline-wise. So we recently broke ground on those. Um, so I'm in the process of, you know, reviewing contractors' uh, submittals. Um, and helping the contractors mobilize on the project site so that they can begin to break ground and get the projects moving along. And there's just a lot of coordination that happens in that early phase um, between um, shop drawings and product data, making sure everything that we put in the documents is understood. Um, part of that process is answering questions from the contractor. You know, now that they're starting to mobilize, they're digging a little deeper into the drawings and perhaps they have questions uh, I don't think I've had a single project without um, request for information is what we call those questions or RFIs. You know, we do our best as architects and engineers um, to get everything in the documents that we think the contractor is going to need to build the building and create the facility um, to put in place the infrastructure, whatever it may be, whatever the project uh, requirements may be. However, inevitably we're human. Sometimes additional information is required by the contractor to fully understand the design intent and then implement that design intent in the built environment. Um, so what that looks like is I will get a question from the contractor in the form of a RFI or a request for information um, is what that stands for. Uh, that request usually starts at a subcontractor level. They will send an email to or discuss with their general contractor um, that they need more information about something in particular because they don't see it in the documents. 
Um, and they'll say, you know, please pass this along to the architecture or engineer. So the general contractor will submit a request for information formally, ideally. Um, I kind of I kind of chuckled a little bit earlier. A lot of times that comes in the form of an email, um, whether it be to try to avoid paperwork or it's just quicker just to send an email. Um, but we have to gently remind the contractor that we do need a request for information. Uh, we want to document every um, enhancement, change, alteration, whatever you want to call it, um, decision that's made during the process so that we have a clear uh, paper trail and we can get back to how how and why that decision was made. So we will gently nudge them and say, please submit a formal request for information. <clears throat> Once we get that, we'll distribute that to the appropriate team member that needs to answer that question thoroughly. And the answer to that RFI can be um, quite different. It can vary also. It can come in the form of, um, and I'll elaborate a little bit here uh, in a moment, but it can come in the form of an ASI, an RFP. Um, you know, there's several different avenues we can go. Um, in the case of an ASI or architect supplemental information, there's usually no cost established or associated with that. So the that's the intent of an ASI. It's literally just to take that request for information and give back that information, knowing that there won't be a cost associated with it. So um, it does change the contract documents, um, but not in a manner that would add or deduct value to the contract. So that's one method. The other way to answer an RFI, um, you can respond with an RFP or a request for proposal. So I can um, just directly respond in that way. I can push it back to the general and, and, uh, just say, okay, we look through our documents. Uh, I agree. I, I don't, um, I don't see that in our documents or you need more information, uh, that was, uh, not included in the documents. Can you please give me a proposal for what that's going to cost? And we'll put together drawings and, um, alter the specifications, um, to give them enough information to give us that cost back. Um, that request is discussed with the owner, um, also, so at this point, it's not it's not a contract change. What we're doing is we're just um, we're saying, yeah, we recognize that you need more information. Give us that cost, and and then we'll discuss it with the owner. So we're not telling the contractor to actually do anything at that point. Just give us that cost. So, and there's several reasons that can happen. We can go into that further. Um, so that will get processed by the general contractor. They'll reach out to all their subs, um, subcontractors to uh, get their costs. And then typically they'll put their overhead on profit markup, everything associated with that on top of that number and submit that price back to the AE team. <clears throat> we usually have a conversation about timeline as well. Um, in addition to the cost, it's important to know how long it's going to take to complete that and if that's going to derail or sidetrack the project also. So uh, once we get that all, all that information, we'll discuss all that with the owner. Um, and if the owner so chooses to move forward with it, then at that point, it becomes a, a change order, uh, which will have a contract value associated with it. Um, that could be either a deductive change order or an additive change order. The example that I was giving was something was left uh, out of the document. So that would be an additive change order, a positive value add to the contract. Um, however, I mean, oftentimes we have, uh, RFPs at the owner's request. So either they want something added to the project or, uh, perhaps they want something, um, they no longer, uh, want something. So they want you to deduct it from the project. So they'll say, can you please remove this from the contract? That's a deductive change order at that point. So 
Um, in that case, we would uh, ask for a request. We'd give a request for proposal to the contractor to remove that from the project and give a credit back to the owner. So it's basically the same process. Um, but like I said, it would be deductive. So once we got that cost back, we would say, okay, here's the value you're going to get back for that at this time. Do you want to move ahead with that? Um, so a lot of times a deductive change order does not carry the same value um, as it does at bidding for whatever reason. So that that's kind of the RFI process and, and what's intended by that and how that works. Um, if Now, if a contractor recognizes something that they know is required, but it hasn't been included in the project documents, or maybe they had a discussion with the owner um, and the architect wasn't available, uh, and something ended up being requested, the general can send along a request in the form of a change order request or a COR. That kind of goes around the RFI process. They don't need more information. They have all the information. They know that it's required. It's already been talked about with the owner. So usually they'll already include the pricing with that change order request, pass that along to the design team, copy the owner for review. And if the owner so chooses to move ahead with that, no further discussion is needed because um, you know the value seems appropriate and it is a require, required element, then it becomes a change order and that amount is added to the contract. So and likewise, once that happens retroactively, all that information gets added into the contract documents and documented. So, okay, that was a mouthful. Sorry if I bored you. Um, it's an important part of the process, but it, it, you know, not necessarily exciting at this point in your career, I'm sure. I'm going to continue um, working on some of these CA duties. I've got a lot to do and I will talk to you again soon. All right. So quick update on the draft presentation uh, went well to the owner today. Some good feedback was received. Um, it, they, the, uh, the owner re returned some feedback based on things they wanted to add to the report. And so we've already updated that in the project. Um, that's moving along. So that was a, that was a good, uh, good meeting. The pay progress meeting that I mentioned uh, that I took part in today with the owner as well as the general contractor went pretty well. Um, it went as well as to be expected. I received the um, pay request just a couple hours before the meeting, so I really didn't have time to vet that and make sure that my site observation aligned with what they're requesting. So um, we were not able to um, recommend payment at that time. I'm going to need to take a couple days and go through that. Uh, one thing that uh, we need to do is we need to make sure we do our due diligence. Um, we're, we're representing the owner and we're, um, we have this obligation to, when we're on site uh, and through our discussions with the contractor, uh, through our knowledge of the project, make sure that when they submit a pay request in uh we look through it that what you see in the field, what they've accomplished aligns with that pay request. Obviously, the owner is really leaning on us to ensure those two things are in sync. Um, so we weren't able to get that part of the meeting um, finalized today, but we, I was able to do my site observation um, walk around with the client and the contractor, as well as um, walk around um, after that by myself and take a look at portions of the project that have been completed since my last visit. So in that regard, it was a successful meeting. Um, sometimes, uh, not in this case, but sometimes you could be working with a new client and they might have little to no building experience. I, I have had a meeting like that this week uh, recently where we were having our first pay progress meeting and the client had never um, been through that. So um, 
one thing to remember when that occurs is this is a very exciting time for that particular client. So they may have never done this before, um, or it's been a long time since they've done it. You're going to want to walk them through step by step and try to not take for granted things that are common knowledge to yourself or to the contractor. Um, sometimes we have to put on a teaching hat and um, walk through the process with the client, walk through that first pay progress um, meeting, um, as well as any meeting for that matter for the first time with, with that particular client for their project, whatever meeting type uh, that may be, and just go through the process um, right at the beginning. Let them know that you understand this is their first time going through the process. Um, explain what the meetings are going to look like, what they can expect moving forward. Um, ask if they have any questions and then walk them through those questions and that process again. Um, just take your time. Be thorough. Make yourself available to the owner. The most important thing that you can do is to have an open line of communication with your client, complete transparency, um, and just let them know that you're available. At the end of the day, um, we do a lot of marketing and marketing, marketing pursuits to obtain projects, but in reality, the bulk of our projects create themselves out of those relationships that we form with our clients. Um, I mean, a lot of it also comes from word of mouth and past project experiences, but again, that aligns itself with our client relationships. So recommendations from previous clients that we've worked with um, bring us a lot of work. So those are important. It's important to cultivate those relationships, maintain them through the life of the project and beyond, and just always put forth your best work. Uh, you, you never know where a future project is going to pop up. We are creating this environment um, that can at sometimes um, be sort of intimate to the owner, like their project is very special to them. So through the relationship that we form over the lifespan of the project, it's important that we capture what they want the built environment to be what they want it to feel like, look like, et cetera. You know, through, through that relationship, we are extracting as much information as we can and putting it into our contract documents so that their vision is realized. Um, it's a very special close relationship that we form in a bond um, that spans the life of the project. So you have to cultivate, maintain that relationship as best possible. Uh, the best way to do that is to have that open line of communication. They want to feel comfortable talking to you. Okay, so I'm going to summarize a little bit. I've kind of rambled. Uh, today was a little atypical for me in that uh, it was filled with client meetings, contractor meetings, submittals that were due. Um, I didn't mention it, but I also had a owner-architect contract or agreement that um, is due within a week that I was working on. I went and completed a site observation of a project that's in construction. Um, I also had a little bit of coordination meetings with my team here in the office. I would say today more or less encompassed most of what I do, save the design aspect, which is one of my favorite parts of the job. Um, however, it's not what we do every day. We do a lot of different things. And today kind of represented everything else in the life of a project, uh, save design. Um, I do enjoy the rest of the career and it was a super busy day. So as I head home, um, I'm finishing up this podcast again in my truck via dictation to my iPhone and uh, recording it later. Um, reflecting on the day, it was a very busy day, but it was also a successful day. Uh, a lot was accomplished and there is still a lot to be done. 
Uh, and I look forward to finishing up uh, this recording this evening after I spend some time with my family. Um, I get the kiddos down to bed and get back to work. <laughs> That's a large part of what many architects do. So uh, work-life balance, as I mentioned, can be difficult um, with the workload that we're expected to uh, accomplish. There is often overtime created out of necessity. Um, it's a little self-inflicted by the fact that most architects tend to be perfectionists, um, understanding that that's not attainable. We still strive for that. Uh, it's not a bad thing, but it often leads to putting in late nights. And don't don't take me wrong. I'm not complaining. Uh, this is supposed to be an honest day in the life. So I'm stating the facts. I mentioned previously that we wear a lot of hats. So in addition to this podcast, um, being a project architect and being a project manager, I also recently decided I was going to become a drone pilot. <laughs> I don't have enough to do. I'm in the process of uh, studying to become a licensed drone pilot, uh, and that will allow me to fly drones professionally. Um, perhaps it'll allow me to complete some of my survey work on site, um, which is kind of uh, something that uh, I hadn't thought of previously, but I've recently dabbled in it a little bit, and it is very helpful. Um, it's also going to allow me to do some final photography and that's really project photography. That's really what I, what I wanted to get out of it. Um, it just gives me a lot of additional capabilities and provides value to my career. So I've decided I'm going to do that. I purchased my first drone and, uh, it's an, it's a little bit older drone, but it, um, it's allowed me to begin to learn to fly it. And uh, I am going to schedule the tests within the next couple of months, hopefully. And then I will be a licensed pilot, drone pilot, I should say. Um, I have to do a little bit of studying first, uh, which I'm going to do. Um, and then once I pass it, I'll be licensed. So again, rambling, but the field of architecture is very diverse. And it, it really comes down to you get out of it what you put into it. I encourage... I should say every field, but I encourage every architect to make it your own. There's so many different things that you can do in this field. There's no reason to get burned out. Um, burnout in architecture is a problem, okay? But just don't become stagnant on your own accord. There's so many different things you can do, but you have to get after it. I mean, you must. You, you have to want to achieve different things, and you have to get after it. You're going to have to do some of it in your own free time. That's right. I said, you're going to have to do some of it in your own free time. So many times I'm not knocking anybody down, but there's this misunderstanding that I hear amongst colleagues and fellow architects that they just complain about lack of opportunity, lack of training, lack of resources. My initial question is, are you pursuing that? Are you training in your own time? There are so many resources on the internet now. I mean, through LinkedIn learning, through YouTube. I mean, you could just Google you know, whatever you want, there's really no excuse. Um, and the feedback that I get from those individuals that are complaining typically is I shouldn't have to do that. My employer should provide those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, one thing I do want to say is my employer provides a lot of those learning opportunities. They are, you know, fantastic in that regard. And I'm very blessed, uh, very proud of our firm and their desire to promote education and push the team forward. They do a great job of that. But outside of that, I'm still pursuing in my own time for my own personal benefit further education. Like I said, I'm learning to fly drones, for instance. That's I'm doing that on my own time. It's uh, something that I enjoy. Um, it will provide value to the firm, but it's also going to provide 
personal value to me. So I'm taking that on in my own free time. Um, I want to be successful. In, in turn, the firm's going to benefit from that. And that's fantastic. Um, but it starts with me. Um, so again, <laughs> I kind of rambled again uh, towards the end there. That That is a day in my life. Um, I'm going to sign off for now and we'll pick up where we left off in the next episode, hopefully very soon. So thanks again. We'll talk to you soon.